if I was a well-known psychic and I came to you and I told you that next week, next week at exactly 8.47 p.m., you, you would enter a burning building. You would save a handful of lives, but in the process, you would suffer third-degree burns and be overwhelmed by the smoke to the point that you would flatline when the EMTs tried to revive you. And yet, in the end, after 19 minutes, you would be resuscitated. You would be okay. Knowing all that, would you still run into that building? Keep that scenario in mind as we look together at the third book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. As most of you know, as Way of Grace Church, we have been reading through the New Testament together since October. And currently we find ourselves in this Gospel. It's been wonderful digging back in. One of the things about reading the three Gospels, they're called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke synoptic because they see together they kind of see things in a very similar way based on some of the same material what's interesting is when you come across something you're so familiar with in matthew and mark and luke has a little bit different spin on it a little bit different take on it and you go "Ooh, what's this so i love that i've been catching a number of things that i've i've not seen before that uh, are so encouraging uh, when you when you come to them so we have been reading through Luke and one of our chapters, of course, from last week was chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. So if you are there, would you look down at verses 18 through 22? 18 through 22. I'm going to read those. If you would listen as I read, that would be wonderful. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, Who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others say that that you're one of the prophets of old who is risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. That's a word that just means Messiah, Christ. You're the Messiah of God. And he, Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, let's stop there. If you were wondering why I chose this passage for this morning... Hopefully that last statement, that last phrase made it clear. Do you see the connection there? This is the first mention of Easter in the Gospel of Luke. But before we talk about that phrase, and on the third day be raised, before we talk about that phrase, we need to understand why this passage is here. Why did Luke choose to include this conversation? Why did God inspire this to be recorded and preserved? And even more fundamentally, why did Jesus 
have this exchange with his disciples. Jesus prompted it. He drove it, didn't he? He drove the conversation. He was praying. I don't know if his guys were praying with him or they were just sitting there watching him like, dude, Jesus is praying. Dude, Jesus is praying. Let's just wait him out. Let's see how how long he goes because this dude's like a marathon prayer. He can go for a long time. He's praying and all of a sudden he's like, who do people say that I am? And now, oh, oh, he's not praying anymore. He's asking them questions. Why is he asking them these questions? Why does he begin this conversation? Based on the text, I believe there are three reasons why Jesus has this conversation, why he had this conversation with these men at this point. So let's talk about those. First, take a look at the screen. He wanted... I'm going to turn this a little bit like this. There you go. Yeah. So, first of all, he wanted his disciples to understand the nature of his mission. He wanted them to understand the nature of his mission. Please notice how what Jesus eventually tells them is connected to what he initially asked them. See that connection? His statement in verse 22 actually flows from his questions in verses 18 and 20. How are they connected? Look at how the question eventually leads to Peter's confession. He's asking these questions. It leads then to Peter's confession of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah, the Mashiach, Hebrew. The anointed one is what that means. It was a term used of a king, one who was anointed king. Of course, Jesus doesn't reject this identification by Peter, does he? Why would he? He is the Messiah. (laughs) He was and he remains the Messiah, the promised king of Israel. That's who he is. But Jesus absolutely wants to clarify what that title means. It's a loaded term. Far more loaded then than now. It was a loaded term. And Jesus, as soon as Peter said it, wanted them to be clear about what it meant. Why did he wanted them to, why did he want to clarify on this title? Because he understood that his followers didn't understand the true nature of the Messiah's mission. They envisioned power and prestige. They thought in terms of conquest and acclaim. Their aspirations drifted towards glory, the earthly kind of glory. But Jesus corrects that thinking in verse 22. Look back at that verse. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's like the exact opposite of what these guys, what most first century Jews would have thought about the Messiah's mission. What? Rejected, suffering, murdered, killed. What? What? Nevertheless, what Jesus describes here for them in verse 22 is in fact the nature of the divine path. The divine path 
for any human being in this world is this path. It's this path that he's describing right here. Now, let's hold that thought. And in addition to this, right? In addition to this, so remember Jesus tells them to be quiet when he says, you're the Messiah of God. And, and, and Jesus says, Shh, don't tell anybody this. He charged them, it says, twice. What? Charged and commanded them not to say anything. Why is that? Because he knew it was a loaded phrase. The phrase Messiah was like a powder keg. If people began to hear that Jesus was the Messiah, then it could become like a California brush fire. Woo, right? Driven on by the Santa Anas. <laughs> like, yeah, it just, it's bad because it could get really bad real fast. And Jesus could find himself too quickly at the end of a Roman spear, at the end of a, you know, uh, dry lake bed. I don't know where he, it, would, it could get bad. Jesus knows that that's not the Father's timetable, that he has more work to do. So he's very careful about taking that politically charged, culturally charged word and letting it kind of run wild out there. So he says, no, no, don't tell anybody this. And I need you to know, he says, I need you to know what it truly means that I'm the Messiah. You need to understand the Messiah's mission. But he also wants them to understand, number two, the plan of his father. You probably picked up on the fact that Jesus is describing for his disciples in verse 22 the details of what will happen to him long before, probably months, many months before any of it will actually take place. He's telling them about future events before they happen, right? That's what he's revealing here. And I believe he did this in order to point them to the Father's plan for his life. The things that would happen to him, Jesus is telling us, were no accident. His suffering, his rejection, his death were not a cruel twist of fate. No, everything was the outworking of God's plan. As he declared the beginning of his ministry, the very beginning of his public ministry in chapter 4, verse 21, he was the fulfillment of God's word through the prophet Isaiah. And then at the other end of his ministry, after his resurrection, take a look on the screen. This is what he told them. He expanded on this idea in 2444. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's a Jewish way of saying the entire Old Testament. Everything must be fulfilled. All of it. So as they look back on what had just taken place, all of it from their first meeting Jesus, all of it was the fulfillment of the Father's plan. While there are many Old Testament passages about the triumph of the Messiah, and you better believe those guys love those passages, right? Woo, Messiah! Yeah! He's going to break the nations with a rod of iron! Woo! Smash! Smash! Right? They love those. There are many of those, but these men should have also known about his sufferings. The Messiah's sufferings. The best well known place that we find this is Isaiah 53, 
Look at verses 4 through 7, a selection of verses there. Surely He has borne our griefs. Surely He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him. How did we think of Him? We esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God. He was under a curse, that means. He was afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. That's why He was pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yahweh has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. And it goes on. You see, this was the servant who would come. The servant who would come and He would do a priestly work on behalf of the people. It's what the rabbis used to call Messiah ben Joseph as opposed to Messiah ben David. You see, they couldn't, even, they couldn't even reconcile these two messiahs. They had two different names for these messiahs. But this was the Messiah, and this is what Jesus is pointing them to. But Luke makes it abundantly clear to us that these disciples, as you read through passages like this in chapter 9, he makes it abundantly clear to us that these disciples did not remember such passages, and they did not even understand what Jesus was telling them. Now, we know from the other Gospels that they understood to a certain point, right? When Jesus told Peter about the suffering that was coming and his death that was coming, Peter had a little hissy fit, didn't he? Oh, no, 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 Jesus, that's not happening to you. No, as your PR man, this is a bad move. Dude, you're hurting the brand if you do this. Don't do this. You're not going this way. But Luke really emphasizes another aspect of this, which is this kind of sinful ignorance, this blindness, spiritual blindness. Drop down, if you would, in in chapter 9, down to verses 43 through 45. 9, Luke 9, verses 43 through 45. You'll see there that Luke tells us that while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, can you imagine it? They see him healing. They see him casting out demons. They see this amazing stuff going on and they're marveling like, wow, dude, Jesus, you rock. This is really going well. Look at these crowds. As they were marveling everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let These words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. There's spiritual confusion going on here, isn't there? It's not clear to them. And it seems there's divine activity at work to keep, uh, keep this opaque, to keep this somewhat unclear of what's being said here. If we were to jump ahead to 18, chapter 18, verses 31 and 34, I put those on the screen for you here, we would find these exact same elements that we've talked about from chapter 9. It says, In taking the twelve, he said to them, See, listen guys, look, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be, number one, delivered over the Gentiles, two, mocked, Three, shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, four, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. 
but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Isn't that interesting? But if they didn't get it, why is Jesus trying to explain for them the nature of his mission and the plan of his father like I've bullet pointed for you this morning? Why would he be explaining this, this to them if they're like, like mason block, you know, like you're such a blockhead, you're not getting this. Why is he saying this to them? Well, even though they did not grasp what he was saying at that point, they eventually would. They would remember. They would know what was being said. And that brings us to a final point. Jesus also told them what he told them in chapter 9, verse 22, because he wanted them to understand, number three, the example of his endurance. The example of his endurance. When all was said and done, when Jesus really had suffered many things, as he says in 22, when Jesus actually was rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, after Jesus was killed and on the third day raised, after everything was finished, these disciples would remember his words. They would remember that Jesus knew in advance everything that would happen to him. The betrayal, the lies, the humiliation, the beatings, the spitting, the injustice, the mockery, the rejection, the cross, the agony, the drawing of one's last breath. He knew all of it in advance. And yet, he still pressed on. He still pressed on. In fact, as we read down into verse 51, we find here a hinge verse, we could call it, key to the structure of Luke's gospel. It's chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Luke tells us that he set his face, there's the verb, set his face to go to Jerusalem. The verb there speaks of his determination. The verb there in Greek speaks of his resolve. It speaks of his fixed intention. This is so dominant in Luke's gospel that Luke even reverses the order, changes the order of the temptations from Matthew so that in Matthew, the temptation of Jesus in the desert by the devil ends with the the offer of all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would worship the devil. But in Luke's gospel, the final temptation is taking him to the pinnacle of the temple and saying in Jerusalem, throw yourself down for God will catch you and you will show yourself to be Messiah then. But Jesus says, that's not how I get to Jerusalem. That's not how my path leads to the city. This is how my path leads to the city, to Jerusalem, to Zion. So when it says that he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem, determined, we understand what that means. He's already laid it out in 922. We know where he's going. We know what he'll face. The 
whatever your answer was when I asked you earlier about that burning building, please know that we do not have to speculate how Jesus would answer that question. We don't. We already know. The fact that he knew ahead of time about his suffering, his rejection, his death, did not deter him one bit from saving us. Remember when he spoke about these things, the disciples didn't get it, but later on they would. They would understand. And undoubtedly, he wanted them to understand. He wanted them to understand this. He wanted them to learn from his example. He wanted them to be inspired by his example of endurance in the face of certain suffering. He will go on, in fact, to tell them in chapter 21, he will tell them that the authorities will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. That's the big promise. You'll die, but not a hair in your head will perish. Hmm? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Verse 19, chapter 21, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Does that mean it's up to me to endure and that's how I win the race? It's how I merit salvation? No. It means the divine grace that's at work in me. When it shows itself, it shows itself in endurance. It manifests itself in endurance. Power of the Spirit Even when I stumble and fall, even if I stumble and fall for a season, a season or two, that work is still happening and I get back up and get back in the race and I start running. You see, I also believe that Jesus wanted them, inspired them by his example of endurance, but he also wanted them to recognize, eventually he wanted them to recognize that the words here in 22, the words suffer, rejected, and killed, though they seem dominant here in this verse, they are not the final word in this verse. The final word is what? Raised. It's not rejected, it's raised. It's not suffered, it's raised. It's not killed, it's raised. Raised is the final verse word in verse 22. You see, beyond the cross, there was a crown. After the glory, there would be glory. The humiliation would lead to exaltation. His pain to His reign. In the end, death would be defeated by life. That's what he wants them to know. Yes, his words were a warning, but they were meant to provide incredible hope in the face of certain suffering. Are they doing that in you this morning? Are they doing that in you? Take a minute and think about what we've learned. Though they would not grasp it right away, Jesus wanted His disciples to recognize three important ideas about His path as the Messiah. First, He wanted them to understand, to be totally clear about the fact this is the nature of the Messiah's mission. It involves suffering and even death. Persecution. 
trial and tribulation. Second, he wanted them to understand that this path was no accident or tragic twist of fate, but instead the plan of his heavenly father. Finally, Jesus wanted his followers to embrace the example of his endurance as they looked back and they saw him in the face of certain suffering pressing on, undeterred, unwavering. So what should we do with all these things? What should you do this morning with all these things? How might we live in light of these words 2,000 years after they were spoken? First and foremost, we should give thanks for what Jesus endured. We should give thanks for an undetoured Savior, an unwavering Redeemer. We should give thanks to God. We should praise Him, right? That's exactly what we should do. And since the rest of the New Testament goes on to explain why Christ suffered and was rejected and was killed and was raised, it explains why we should then, after giving Him thanks, we should turn and trust. Turn and trust. What does that mean? Well, if Jesus, the Son of God, had to suffer had to be rejected, had to be killed for my wrong so that I could be forgiven, then I should turn away from the mindset and posture that led me so far astray and led to my Savior's death. I should turn away from it. It's death to me, it was death to Him. I don't want to live that life anymore. That's turning. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And if Jesus then rose from the dead in order to defeat death and offer us eternal life, then I should trust in that. I should trust Him. I should trust that He alone can lead me in this life and give me life, in fact. Turn and trust. But when we do that, We've given thanks. We've turned. We've trusted in light of what Scripture has revealed to us. When we do that and we begin to follow just as those early disciples were following Jesus, when we do this, it's important that we then grasp these same truths that Jesus wanted them to remember. The nature of His mission, the plan of His Father, and the example of His endurance. We need to remember these because these are about us as well. These apply not only to Christ, but those who follow him. How do I know that? Well, we see that from the text here. He wants them to understand. He wants them to be inspired by his example. But we also know from later on in the New Testament. What's amazing about these three ideas is that we find them later on in the New Testament in a book called Hebrews. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 through 7. I completely squeezed all of it on one slide. It's really tiny. See that? You're like, what does that say? If you really want to see it, open your Bible up. (laughs) Go over. I'm not going back to Luke 9, so just go to Hebrews 12 if you want to go to Hebrews 12. Listen for these three ideas. The nature of his mission, the plan of his father, and the example of his endurance. Listen here how they're applied. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood? And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. This is a quote from Proverbs. Nor be weary when he when reproved by him. Here's the truth, brothers and sisters. When, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son, every daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline, God's discipline, that you have to endure. God is treating you, how? As sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Wow. Do you hear it? Just as God's one and only son endured suffering as part of the father's plan, so too will you and I. We also, that's the Father's plan for us. The nature of our path through this world is the same as that of Jesus. As Jesus taught us in John fifteen twenty. Take a look. Remember the word that I said to you, says Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Well, I'm not being persecuted, pastor. Well, one of the reasons is you may not be living for Christ. You may not be walking by faith. You may be walking instead in fear, in shame, ashamed of Jesus, holding back. There are other reasons, too, that we may not be persecuted. And we're thankful for a climate where we're not persecuted in the same way that our brothers and sisters are around the world today and have been throughout history. Not that that can't happen to us here, but we're thankful Brothers and sisters, we must expect such trials and tribulations. We have to expect them as part of the Christian life. There is no other Christian life. I don't care what prosperity teachers are telling you out there about the victorious Christian life, about the triumphant life, who try to dismiss and poo-poo suffering as if it's your fault because you don't have enough faith who try to act like trials are an aberration that comes upon us because we're not doing something right. That is a false theology. That is not the example of Jesus. That is not the path that He laid out for us. We should expect suffering. We should expect trials. We know that. He wrote, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote this to the church. He said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if you meet trials of various kinds, but when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Count it all joy. Trials of various kinds. I love that expression because it clarifies for us that this includes persecutions and pressures, disease and dysfunction, loss and confusion. Anything that you go through that's difficult. I might set aside in a special category self-inflicted by you being a sinner, choosing sin, choosing to indulge in sin in one way or another, and the consequences you suffer for that, don't say you're suffering for Jesus. No. But apart from that, all that we endure in this life, whether it's the persecution of someone else or it's cancer, these are the trials of various kinds that our Heavenly Father has seen fit to bring into our life that we might know His power at work within us, that we might be refined by the refiner's fire, trials of various kinds. This is what I hope you will leave with today. Yes, that the nature of the genuine Christian life is one that involves suffering. Yes, that these are not random or tragic twists of fate, but part of the Father's redemptive design for your life. And yes, that Jesus is our ultimate example when it comes to the endurance we need because of this certain suffering that is coming to us, that has already come to this. Yes, to all of those, but on this Easter morning, as you turn your eyes to Him, as you fix your eyes on Him, please, please, please cling to the joy that Jesus exemplified. What kind of joy is it? What kind of joy? Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before Him, for that joy, He endured the cross He despised the shame and is seated even now at the right hand of the throne of God. Easter was the joy as he pressed forward. Jesus accepted the certainty of his sufferings. But as we read here, he also rejoiced in the reality of his resurrection. He never left that out. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. But on the third day, I will be raised up to life. And his disciples so quickly just picked up on the first three. Oh, oh, whoa, this is not right. And they seemed to miss, like no one came to him and said, Jesus, what's up with this resurrection thing you're talking about at the end? And be raised? And be raised? We never hear them asking about that. But that's the kicker in all of this, isn't it? The joy, of the reality of his resurrection He rejoiced in the reality of His resurrection. Shouldn't we as well? Whatever trial, whatever suffering, whatever difficult time that you are going through this morning, fix your eyes. Look, right? Look to Him. Look to the joy set before you. God has joy set before you. It's the reality of your resurrection. He wants you to look at that and rejoice and, and let that be fuel for the fire of your endurance in the face of certain sufferings. The Apostle Paul teaches us that. Take a look, Romans eight eleven. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and you're not a Christian if you don't have the spirit. If that spirit dwells in you, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. 
through His Spirit who dwells in you. His Spirit who dwells in you. His Spirit who dwells in you. What is He saying? He's saying the Spirit is your arabon. And your arabon in Greek is your deposit, your down payment. If you have the Spirit inside of you, you have a divine down payment from God who says, I'm coming back to get you. My intentions are serious. I've put a million dollars down as a down payment. (laughs) You know I'm coming back. I'm going to give life to your mortal body just like I gave life to the mortal body of my son when he rose up from the dead. The joy of Easter is first the joy of knowing that Jesus lives. Amen? That's the first joy. Jesus lives. We have a living Lord. But the joy of Easter is also this joy, the joy of resurrection. A joy that should inspire us as we run such a difficult race. And it is a difficult race. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It's a hard race. It's an exhausting race. But God gives us joy. He inspires us for this race. If you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, then as you endure trials of various kinds, treasure your hope, brother, sister. Treasure your hope, the hope of eternal life that Christ has made possible. Treasure that hope of eternal life, eternal comfort, eternal commendation, eternal prosperity eternal fellowship, eternal fullness, eternal wonder and worship. That, brothers and sisters, is the joy set before us. And all of it found in Him, in Christ. All of it summed up in Him, in Christ. That is the joy set before us. And all of it is ours through Jesus. He endured that we might endure. He endured that we might endure. So be encouraged this Easter morning. Be encouraged. You will make it. He will bring you through. Amen? He will bring you through. In light of Easter, let's trust Him for that very thing this morning. Would you pray with me?